So in the not so distant past, I was a youth pastor at a church, um, which meant I was in charge of um, discipling, helping disciple kids from uh, sixth grade to 12th grade. It's as exciting as it sounds, right? And uh, one of the things we did is we did home Bible studies. We would, in, in people's homes throughout the week, and similar to our gospel communities here, but for younger people. And in one of these homes, there was a trampoline in the backyard, one of those big trampolines. You've seen them before. But it wasn't one of the ones that have the safety nets, you know, the safety fence around it. This was, there was no safety nets. Um, it was a lot more dangerous and therefore a lot more exciting. And kids would jump on it before and after our Bible studies. And sometimes the leaders, myself included, would participate. And I discovered something. And if you're, if you're like into trampolines, you might know this. Um, it's called the double jump. I don't know if you're familiar. I see some heads nodding. So you're like, okay, you know what the double jump is. And, and here's how the double jump works. Okay, so you have somebody, preferably a, a lightweight sixth or seventh grader, you know, jumping, just jumping normally on the trampoline. Then you have somebody else kind of standing on the side, someone of more uh, substantial stature. That would be me. And as the person is jumping, on a down jump, what you do is you've you got to time it just right to where you jump and you put all of your weight into that trampoline. And your, your job is to pull them down as far as you can. Why? Because if you pull them down, they will soar to glorious heights, right? And it, it was... It was exciting. So we kind of, it was a thing. Like, we're going to do the double jump thing. And we would just launch kids up in the air. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, how did you keep this job? <laughs> I didn't get fired, and no one, no one got hurt. I will say that we, we, put, we put a stop to the double jump uh, extravaganza when we almost launched a seventh grader into the neighbor's yard over the fence. We're like, okay, that's, that's that, right? But it's, it's really quite simple, the science behind it, right? That's how trampolines work. The lower you go, the, the higher you fly. So if you want to experience greater heights on the tra- trampoline, but you're a lightweight, you know, sixth or seventh grader, you need someone to help you. You need someone to, to put all of their weight into that trampoline to make sure that you launch to uh, ridiculous and even sometimes dangerous heights. Well, as we think of the book of Jonah, if the book of Jonah were like a trampoline, chapter one is that down jump. It's what we saw last week, right? We saw Jonah go way down into the depths of rebellion against God. He's, he's ran away from his presence. He's, he's experienced a, a depression. He's lost his sense of joy. And now, as chapter 2 begins, Jonah is at the bottom, right? Both literally, he is descending into the ocean as he reflects back on in this prayer in chapter 2, but also spiritually, he is at the bottom. It's that down jump. But the good news of grace, the good news of Jonah chapter 2, and the good news of the gospel is that Jonah doesn't stay there. God doesn't allow him to stay there. In fact, God is sovereignly working in such a way to bring him down so low so that he can be awakened afresh to the grace of God so that he can be restored to the heights of knowing God's presence once again. And you see, failure is something uh, that is inevitable for all of us, right? Suffering and trials is something that is inevitable for all of us. Every single one of us in this room is either entering into a trial, we're either in the midst of one or we've come out of one. 
That's just the way it is as we live in this fallen world. And as we walk through chapter 2 this morning and see how we're like Jonah, we learn how God brings us low so that he can raise us again to great heights. How he uses our trials, in Jonah's case a literal storm, but for for us a, a metaphorical storm, the storms in our life to awaken us to our sinfulness, to awaken us to our need of his grace, and to awaken us to the provision of salvation in him. So let's walk through chapter 2 together. And we're going to do this in three simple parts. First, we see Jonah's petition in verses 1 through 4. Then we see Jonah's provision in verses 5 through 7. And then lastly, we'll see Jonah's praise in verses 8 through 10. So as we jump in, first, we see Jonah's petition. Look at verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that God appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah after he was thrown overboard. And it was this miraculous rescue. And now Jonah is in the belly of this creature for three days. And he really does the only thing. You can't do much when you're in the belly of a great fish. And so he does what he should have been doing all along, right? He starts to pray. And we're really meant to see how significant this is in light of what Jonah has been experiencing. It's as if the text is saying, finally Jonah prayed, right? Up until this point, not only has Jonah ignored God's presence, but he's tried with all of his might to flee from God. In the midst of the life-threatening storm that we saw in chapter 1 last week, he's even prompted to pray by an unbelieving pagan sea captain who knows this is divine. He tells him to cry out to his God. But even after being prompted by someone who doesn't even believe in Yahweh, the one true God, Jonah refuses to pray. But now, what's happened? He he realizes the futility of trying to run from God. He realizes he's hit the bottom and he cries out to him. Notice a few things about Jonah's prayer, his petition. This was from a place of distress. Verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now you might say, well, of course it's, it's a cry from a place of distress. He's inside the belly of a, a fish. You say, that distress sounds like a bit of an understatement, doesn't it? But that's not merely what Jonah's doing here. He's not just crying out because of the potential loss of physical life. Though that's certainly part of it. We'll see in a minute how Jonah was literally drowning. But Jonah's fearful of something much greater here. And this is why he says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. What's that word? We don't use that word often. What is Sheol? Well, in the Old Testament, Sheol is used most often to refer refer to the place of the dead under God's judgment. It's not just death, but death under judgment. T. Desmond Alexander, a commentator, says, It's not annihilation and death that Jonah fears here, but rather the prospect of being abandoned in Sheol and consequently separated thereafter from God. So Jonah's thought is this. I'm about to be finally and completely cut off from God's presence. I'm about to be under his judgment forever. And he cries out to God. And we're immediately told that God answers. He answered me. You heard my voice. 
what, what grace is this to Jonah? Think of the ways God could have answered. Jonah, are you kidding me? Like now you want help? Now that you're about to lose your life, you're going to reach out to me? You've got yourself into this mess. You get yourself out. That's not how God responds. Now, that's how we tend to respond, isn't it? When people cry out for help. We try to give counsel to others. We try to give advice and then it's scorned. And then when someone's in trouble, they come back reaching out and we've kept score in our hearts. And we think, oh, this, this is your problem. We're tempted to write them off. Friends, I, I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that God is not like me. You see, prayer is, is meant to be so much more than a last resort. But it's certainly not less than that. That's what Jonah teaches us here. To use an illustration, we should see prayer like a, like a walkie-talkie. Right? Like a wartime walkie-talkie, as one pastor says. Jonah should have been calling on God. He should have been using the walkie-talkie the moment he felt this temptation in his heart to ignore God when he felt the call to go to Nineveh. He should have been calling for spiritual reinforcement. God, I know, I don't want to obey you now, but I need your help. I know I should. Instead, what does Jonah do? He pushes prayer aside. And now he's, he's treating prayer like, not like a walkie-talkie, but like a 911 call. None of us call 911 just to talk to the operator. That's probably illegal, right? When do you call 911? Only in emergencies, right? That's not what prayer is meant to be. But, but what grace God shows us that even as Jonah makes the 911 call, even after he has completely scorned the presence of God, we're told that God immediately answers. God's grace. See, maybe, maybe you're at the bottom this morning and you feel too ashamed to pray. You're overwhelmed with guilt because whatever situation you're in, you feel like I've ignored God in the past. I've got myself into this. I'm going to get myself out. He doesn't want to hear from me. And Jonah 2 comes along and says, yes, he does. Yes, he does. We see this all over Scripture. I love Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Psalm 145, 18, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. Not just those who get their stuff together, but to all. So if you're in distress this morning like Jonah and you're waiting, some, for some reason you're waiting and you're thinking, maybe I can get it together a little bit before I approach God. If you wait till you get it together before you call out to God in prayer, you will never call out to God in prayer. So don't hesitate. Call out to Him. He longs to hear. Jonah's petition was one of distress, but it's also a petition that recognizes God's sovereignty. Look at verse 3. He says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, R.C. Sproul says that God's sovereignty means he owns what he makes and he rules what he owns. I love that. We've seen that in the story of Jonah, right? In other words, God is in total control at all times and is more so he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And now here, we see Jonah reflecting back in prayer on what happened in chapter 1. And you might say, if you were here last week, or if you've read Jonah chapter 1, you might say, wait a second. Jonah here says, God, you cast me into the deep, but 
in chapter 1, didn't the sailors take Jonah and throw him overboard? So why is Jonah saying that God is the one who casts him into the deep? See, Jonah knows that while quite literally the, the sailors threw him overboard, that they were only the secondary cause. He's a good enough theologian to say God was behind this. God was the primary cause. All of this, Jonah says, was part of God's sovereign plan to awaken him to his disobedience. He recognizes that now. And this isn't a prayer of blame from Jonah. We don't want to misread this here. He's not saying, God, you got me into this, now you get me out. No, it's a, it's a prayer of humble recognition of the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of trial. And this is one of the great mysteries of the Bible and the Christian life, isn't it? How does God sovereignly work, even in tragedy, even in pain and trial, to bring about my good? We can't fully understand it, but we see its testimony in Scripture. And let's be honest, if we were to tell stories in this room, we can look back and see how God has brought trials to bring about our good, can't we? Why do we pray if God is sovereign? We can't fully comprehend it, but we see it right here. Jonah is praying. He's recognizing God's sovereignty. And we know because the scriptures tell us that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And one of the greatest means that God uses to accomplish his sovereign purposes is the prayers of his people. So we pray and we trust. Here's the point here. Notice how the doctrine of God's total sovereignty, which tends to be such a point of contention, for, for Christians, and understandably so, right? It's a weighty truth. But notice that in Jonah's distress, it doesn't drive him away from God. He doesn't resort to this sort of apathetic fatalism, God's sovereign, so why do I need to pray? God's sovereign, so why do I need to obey? Whatever happens, happens. No, what does he do? He finds comfort in the truth that even in the darkest moment of his life, God is God and he's in control. Friends, this this should bring us comfort. You may be surprised by your trials. You may be surprised by your suffering, but God is not surprised. You may have no idea how something like a broken relationship or the loss of life or sickness or death or depression or whatever it is, you may have no idea how that can have a purpose for your good, but God is actively working in the midst of our misery to awaken us, to shape us, and to refine those whom he loves. It's meant to bring us comfort. Do you recognize God's sovereignty in your trials? Tim Keller calls these, these times in our lives, and I love this phrase, he calls them God's severe mercies. Right? They're severe because they're painful. Jo- Jonah was distant from God. He was literally about to lose his life. That's severe. But they're mercies because God is not wasting them, but using them to restore us to himself. That's what it takes to get Jonah to pray. Jonah's petition, he he recognizes this. And then we see that Jonah's petition, the core of it, was one to be restored to God's presence. We see this in verse 4. He says, Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. This is at the center of what what Jonah desires here. He's asking, he's longing for, he's hoping to be restored to God's presence. You've heard the phrase, be careful what you wish for, right? 
Yet Jonah wished to be away from God's presence in chapter 1. He wanted to avoid the difficult task of preaching to the Ninevites. Now he's gotten his wish. And he's lost the joy of God's presence. He's away from his people, the temple, Jerusalem, where the presence of God dwelt. And he realizes that he made a horrifying mistake in running from God. He shares the sentiments of the psalmist in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. See, friends, this is so important for us as we experience trial and as we experience suffering because there's this sort of an anemic form of religion or Christianity, I use that with air quotes, in our culture today that says your suffering is a result always of your unfaithfulness to God. But if you're faithful to Him, then you're going to experience breakthrough. You're going to have victory in your life. And what that means, if you've heard this message before, is your marriage is going to thrive or, or your family's going to thrive or you're going to have career success or relational success and you're even going to have health and wealth. God wants to, to prosper you. It's a common American gospel, but it's, it's not the biblical gospel. The ultimate petition and hope for Jonah, notice this, is not the restoration to his prophetic office. He's not saying, God, please give me my job back. He's not saying, I want to go back to the way things were, you know, where I just had a nice paycheck and I had a good ministry going. He's not asking for anything material here. What does he want? He wants God. He wants the restoration to God's presence. He could care less about other things. And this is an important Reminder, and I think even warning to us as we experience suffering, as we pray, as we endure trials, and as we go about the Christian life, make sure that you're not equating the gifts of God with the giver. Make sure you know what restoration means. Don't think, oh, if I could just get through this and have more money, then the trial would be over. If I could just have this relationship, then, then I would be restored. No, Jonah is saying, what I need is God in his presence. We just walked through this seven-week study called Life Explored, and it's really answering one question. What's the greatest gift God can give you? It's not stuff. It's not relationships. It's not notoriety. It's not popularity. It's not money. It's God himself. God himself. And that's what Jonah is asking for here. That's at the core of his petition. And then secondly, we see Jonah's provision. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Jonah's in the sea, and as he's there, God provides for him both physically and spiritually. And we see this physical provision as he sort of rehearses what happened as he was drowning in verse 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So Jonah is prayerfully and poetically reflecting on how God literally saved him from drowning. He describes death as a place with barred gates. This would have been before the great fish swallowed up Jonah. And the reality is we don't know exactly what happened to Jonah. Was was he on the brink of death? You know, sort of, uh, you know, drifting out of consciousness as he was drowning before this fish swallowed him up? Or did he actually die and experience a resurrection? We're not 
entirely sure. Both are certainly possible. Regardless, what we're meant to see is the miraculous saving power of God here. He's, he's rescued in such a way that the only explanation is God's intervention. I read one account that tried to say, well, the fish was actually a hotel on a nearby shore called the fish. And that's, that's what it meant. No, it was, the fish wasn't a hotel, right? That, that's, that was just like, I think that was like someone at a college party just threw that out there and somehow it ended up as a legitimate argument in a book somewhere. No, this is a miraculous physical rescue. And what God is doing, he, he tends to do this in our lives, doesn't he? He'll use circumstances to remove the options for false hope in order to gain our attention and keep us still enough to hear from him. That's what God is doing for Jonah. Jonah had one thing on his mind, Tarshish. That's where he was fleeing to. And what does God do? Circumstantially, God removes Tarshish as an option. See, the storm and the subsequent physical rescue created the context for Jonah's spiritual renewal and provision. And we see this in verse 7, the spiritual provision. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He remembered the Lord. Jonah's brought so low, he can't go any lower. And now he's ready to see God as his only hope and his ultimate provision. It's been said many times, I, don't, I try to find out who, who uh, coined this phrase, but I've heard it so much, that you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And this text is telling us that in this moment, where Jonah has nothing else, he remembers the Lord. And, and once again, what do we notice? God's readiness to hear his prayer. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this passage, and he says, it's not when history is redirected by some supernatural event that the great miracles occur. It's when a person comes to acknowledge his or her sin and confess it before God, and when, as a consequence, God restores the broken creator-creature relationship. And that's what God is doing with Jonah here. He's restoring this broken creator-creature relationship. This reminds us of a, of a parable that Jesus told in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. A young man dishonors his father by asking for his inheritance early. He gives it to him and he then takes the inheritance and, and goes to a far off country. And what does he do? He squanders it away. And, he, and the text tells us he lives recklessly. Then famine strikes and the son has spent all his money. He finds himself poor and hungry and he resorts even so much so that he resorts to eating pig food. And he's hit rock bottom and it's there where God gets his attention. And the text tells us in Luke 15, 7 that he came to his senses. He remembered. And he thinks, I can go back to the, the way things were or I can't go back to the way things were. I've dishonored my father too much, but maybe I can at least be a servant in the house of my father. But as he returns, what happens? As he's walking up to his father's house, his father's standing there waiting for him. And he's overjoyed, and he, he runs to him, and he embraces him, and he hugs him, and he kisses him. And he clothes him, and he throws him a party. This wayward son just like Jonah and just like each of us, we have to be brought to the end of ourselves before we experience God's restorative grace. Right? We have to be made to feel the sense of our failure before Him and our insufficiency before we remember, before we, we come to our senses 
and realize that our provision for the spiritual poverty that we've been trying to fill ourselves is found only in God. And we see echoes of this all around us. In 2008, J.K. Rowling, uh, Harry Potter, for those of you who don't know, uh, gave, she's not Harry Potter, she wrote Harry Potter. just want to clarify. Uh, she gave the commencement speech at Harvard University in 2008. And she speaks of a, a similar time in her own life. She is, is not a professing Christian, but she talks about a time when she, quote, failed on an epic scale. All right, already me and JK, have a, we have a point of where we relate, right? Raise your hand if you failed on an epic scale. And she says, an exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded. And I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. Then she goes on. She says, I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had, this is so interesting. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena, writing, in which I believed I truly belong. You hear that? And of course, she's talking about this first Harry Potter book. And what she's essentially saying is not just that, oh, it's good to experience failure from time to time, and we can learn from it. She's saying, had I not experienced that failure, I never have, would have been where I am today. And Rowling's an example of this that anyone can relate to in some way, Christian or not, the benefit of being brought low. Jonah's an example in another unique way because God graciously brings him low for what? For deliberate disobedience. But friends, there, there's more of this in the Scriptures. Did you know that God also does this for those who are even faithfully following him. We, we see this clearly in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. The complete opposite of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go, and Jonah says, nope, goes the other direction, and God graciously and sovereignly brings him low. God tells Paul to go on mission, and he says yes, and is faithful to the mission, but still God, faith, God uses sovereignty, his sovereignty in trials to bring him low as well. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. Find encouragement in this verse, brothers and sisters. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, just like Jonah, right? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, that Paul recognizes the pursuing grace of God. You may be running from him like Jonah. You may be in your mind indifferent to him. Or you may be faithfully living for him like Paul. Whichever one, know that God uses failures, trials, and struggles, and sufferings so that you can be made not to rely on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. The question for each of us is not, oh, will we face these trials? Will we face these, these rock-bottom moments? The question for us is, how are we going to respond? Will we try to run from God? Uh, we see how well that worked out from jo for Jonah, right? Not a good idea. Will we ignore God's intervening hand and sort of just chalk it up to circumstance? Or will we embrace our weakness, confess our sins, cry out to Him, and see Him as our provision? Here's how Paul describes what success looks like as we face trials in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. He says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now notice what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say, I will be weak for a while, then I'll move on from weakness onto strength. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he tells us God's grace is, is like a power source. And when a lamp is plugged into the power source, the light shines bright, right? And Paul is saying that the way you maintain spiritual strength is to, to stay plugged into the source, the gospel, to Jesus. And the way you stay plugged into the source of grace is by recognizing your weakness. The moment you rely on yourself, the moment you resort to self-sufficiency, is the moment you unplug yourself from the source of God's grace. To paraphrase one old hymn entitled, Come Ye Sinners, one verse says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of strength fondly dream. All the strength He requires is to feel your need of Him. This He gives you. This He gives you. It's the Spirit's rising beam. So my prayer is that for each of us, like Jonah, we're brought to a place where in total weakness, we realize that God is our true provision because that's where true joy is. That's where true strength is. That's where true praise is found. And that leads us to number three. So we've seen Jonah's petition. He's made his petition to God to be restored to his presence. He's found that once again, that God is his provision. And now he ends his prayer by rightly praising God for this rescue. We see Jonah's praise in verses 8 through 10. Now, verse 8, Jonah shows us this rejection of idolatry. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. Now, this might seem like a plain, straightforward verse. It's actually really interesting given the context here because Jonah's saying a theological truth here, but there's really a question about why he says this. What's his motivation here? And this is where we get deeper into the heart of Jonah's sort of complicated, divided heart himself. Wouldn't it be wonderful to say, from this moment on, the, 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 the sea creature spits him out in a moment, and then he's just a faithful missionary, willing to die for the gospel, loves people, lays down his life. That's not what happens at all. In fact, he's selfish. He struggles with prejudice, and we might be getting a glimpse of that here in verse 8. Because it's likely that Jonah's talking about the pagan sailors in chapter 1 that he was just on the boat with. And, and if that's true, then this hints at a bit of pride in Jonah's heart. He still sees himself as better than those of other nations. He's still harboring prejudice in his heart toward those whom God wishes to save. And while it's a question mark here, as Pastor Clint will show us in the next coming weeks, this is certainly true. Jonah is really good at pointing out the idolatry of those people over there, but he's still completely aware of the more subtle idols of self and even nationalism in his own heart. Tim Keller comments on this. He says, despite his breakthrough here, Jonah has not grasped grace as deeply as we might at first think he does. There's still a sense of superiority and self-righteousness. He sees the literal idols that the pagans worship, and he doesn't see the more subtle idols of his own life 
that keep him from fully grasping that he too, just like the heathen, lives only equally by God's grace. I'll be honest with you, as we hold up the mirror of Jonah, say, how are we like him? This is where I most clearly see myself here. The Holy Spirit brought great conviction in my heart of this. See, Jonah is showing us that even in our most humble moments, even when we're repentant of our rebellion, our hearts are still tinged with sin and idolatry, this side of heaven. Jonah seemed to to question everyone else's religious practices, but not his own heart. And that's a dangerous place for us to be. We live in a culture like this, don't we? We're skeptical of everyone and everything except ourselves. Right? We love arguments and discussions that are polarizing because it's way easier to do the us versus them thing and just sort of throw grenades, right? than it is to sit down and have a conversation and love people well. On top of this, we're we're inundated with this faulty doctrine of man that says your heart is basically good and is a good guiding principle for your life. I was listening to a song in the car with my daughter this week on the way to the dentist. It was a kid's TV show she liked. And and the chorus said, uh, you need to listen, or I need to listen to my heart. That was the refrain over and over again. And me, this is like typical pastor dad thing, but, you know, I kind of turn it off. Okay, well, uh, you know, why is that bad advice? Or I think of a great song by Tom Petty. She's going to listen to her heart. It's going to tell her what to do as if that's a good thing. Great music, Tom. Terrible advice, right? So I asked Piper, my daughter, I said, well, you know, why why is that bad advice? And she responded, well, what if your heart tells you to kill somebody? Are you going to listen to it? My first thought was, that's an extreme example, but the point is well taken, right? I was going to say, take something or be mean to your sibling, but you just went there, right? But what if your heart tells you to despise Ninevites? What if if your heart tells you to love your nation more than others? What if your heart tells you that your career is your God or money or family or entertainment or whatever it is? Friends, that's what an idol is. Whatever object receives the utmost of our affections, that is our idol. And our heart is deceitful above all things, God tells us. It's desperately sick. We don't need to listen to our hearts. Jonah didn't need to listen to his heart. He needed to question his heart. Speak to his heart and have it be shaped by God's word. And just as an aside here, this is why community is so important for the believer. Because we all have blind spots. And if we're living life together as followers of Jesus, someone can come along and say, Hey, listen, I know you love Jesus. I know you're pursuing him, but you're missing it here. Jonah had this this blind spot. And we'll see this unfold in the future. But this, this praise goes on. He's still praising God. It's still a true statement. And he goes on from this challenging phrase in verse 8 to express true gratitude for God's grace in verse 9. He says at the beginning of verse 9, But I, with one voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Jonah's again hopeful, and he's looking forward to a day when he's going to get to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And, And notice this here. Jonah is equating being restored to God's presence with sacrificial worship in the temple mentions the temple in verse 4, he mentions it in verse 7 explicitly, and he refers to it here. Why? Because Jonah knew that the mercy seat, which was the throne of God on earth, 
was in the temple. And Jonah knew that on the Day of Atonement, once a year, a priest would go in and would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice for the people on that mercy seat. And Jonah knew that the only way he, a sinner, could be in the presence of the one true holy God was through sacrifice. So that's why he equates worship with sacrifice. Jonah and the Israelites knew that it was only through the death of another that forgiveness could be secured for a person and a person could be restored to the presence of God. And Jonah's right response to such undeserved forgiveness is gratitude. Now this word sacrifice is so important for us because while Jonah or the Israelites could not have known all that is represented the way we understand it today, what's happening in the temple is a picture of what would happen centuries later when Jesus came to live rightly, to die sacrificially as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. He rose from the dead so that all who believe in him are restored to his presence by his grace. And what's the right response to the offer of that free gift? It's to receive it. It's to be grateful. It's a gift to be received by faith in Christ. Friends, if you're here and you've yet to do that, that's what it means to become a Christian. In short, we could say, how are we restored to God's presence? Only through Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to, to do that today, to receive the free gift of salvation by trusting in Christ. See, Jonah only knew this in part. He doesn't understand the gospel in the way we do. We're looking back. He's looking forward. Yet he's still in the belly of the fish. He hasn't even been spit out on shore yet. And he's expressing gratitude for God's salvation. That's a lesson for us. How much more should we then who have the full gospel message be thankful, be grateful for our salvation even in the midst of our difficulty? See, for the Christian, praise and gratitude doesn't wait until circumstances are better because our praise and our gratitude is not contingent upon our circumstances. Our praise and gratitude is rooted in the grace and salvation of our unchanging Savior. And then for Jonah, this leads to him to a transformed life as we come to the end of this passage. Second half of verse 9, he says, What I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's praise here involves making vows. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not just going to declare praise with my words. I'm going to live in such a way that praises you. That's what true worship looks like. It's not merely attending a worship gathering or doing religious duties. It's demonstrated by a transformed life. There's this wonderful scene at the uh, beginning, of, toward the beginning of the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, the movie adaptation, where Edmund Dantes meets Jacopo. And Jacopo is a pirate who's been caught stealing from the crew. And the captain of the ship decides to force Jacopo to fight Dantes, who later becomes the count. They found him on the shore. He just escaped from the nearby island prison. And they're supposed to fight to the death. And Dantes, in this fight, he gains the upper hand. But instead of killing the guilty Jacopo, he strikes a deal with the captain and lets Jacopo live. And I love this scene. Jacopo is overwhelmed by the mercy of this complete stranger. And he pulls Dantes close to his face. And he makes a vow, vow of allegiance. And he says, I am yours forever. I'm your man. And that's what a life of true worship looks like. It's not an attempt to earn salvation. Rescue's already taken place, right? Jonah's not making a vow to earn anything from God. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord, nor is it a vow that's maintained by our own strength. Instead, it's recognizing, God, you've paid the ultimate sacrifice to rescue me. How could I live any other way except for you and for your glory? That's why Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And now Jonah's willing. He's been restored. He's open before God. Wherever you have me go, God, I'll go. Whatever you have me do, I'm willing and I'm ready. You see, Jonah needed to experience that restorative grace of God himself before he goes and proclaims it to others. He needed to be brought low so that he could soar to the heights of a transformed life. And our passage ends in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The deliverance is complete. Right? Jonah's been restored. And while certainly, as we'll see, he's still flawed, still affected by his own sin, he's ready for a second chance. The question for us is, what about us? Are we ready and willing to recognize our spiritual poverty and pray for his presence, make petition to him? Are we willing to see that he is our provision And to receive him by faith and in weakness. Are we willing to, even in the midst of our difficulties, even in the midst of our suffering, to praise him in gratitude for his transforming grace? Brothers and sisters, don't let your weakness keep you from him. All the strength he requires is to feel your need of him. Let's pray.